Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 137. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, my king, our father, our king, Lord, we're so um, blessed to be able to have the opportunity to share with one another via the medium of the internet and to just connect with one another, even though it's across several thousand miles in many cases. Um, Lord, we're um, humbled to know that you are continuing to... Um, uh, to protect us and to provide for us and to give us a, a sure hope, an anchor of 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 um, of conviction, of of surety, of Lord, we know that um, there is um, there are, are are blessings beyond the the what seems like hopelessness all around us. Sometimes it's easy just to watch the news and to uh, you know look at the headlines and to see what's going on around us. The, the shootings happening just week after week, um, the, the senseless killing, um, the um, you know the political uh, confusion and nonsense that's just rampant in, in our in American government. I'm not sure about all the other governments around the world, but uh, I can speak for America. Um, the, uh, the the racial injustice and, and social uh, just um, situations that are just always in front of us, the, 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 the tensions, the racial tensions in America. Um, and then we've got on top of all of that, we've got a pandemic raging on, and, and it just seems like it's just horrifically relentless um it just won't let go it won't go away and then we hear news of outbreaks in places like india and there's just the numbers are just shocking and yet on top of all of that lord we have a god whom we know is in control and he has not relinquished control and so we've got to we've got to fall back to that promise over and over again as we trust what your word has promised to us that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And then indeed, on a, on a kind of a general uh, worldwide benevolent sense, you're still in charge of the whole world. I, I don't understand how that works and why you would um, uh, still allow these things to happen in this world that you created and yet still you're in control. So Lord, we trust in you. We, we trust in, in your great name and in your, your great love for us. Continue to raise us up as your own children, as a father who loves us and provides for us and cares for us and meets our needs and most of our wants as well. Um, help us to draw to close to, together to with one another, reaching out, even though it's difficult to get out 
because of social distancing and the the furloughing and and the, uh, the 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 sheltering in place and all of those rules and mandates and the mask wearing and the hand washing. Lord, it's hard to 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 congregate and to socialize, but nevertheless, help us to make an effort to continue to reach out and bless one another, praying for one another. Um, providing for one another, reaching out and supporting one another, uh, those of us who've fallen on hard times because of furloughing and pandemic and unemployment and uh, just need a little bit of help from, from the rest of the community. Lord, thank you that by your hand, you're providing for each and every one of us. Be with us tonight. Raise us up. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and uh, enlarge our capacity to understand the text. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Just want to thank everyone for joining me week after week um, during these live internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a congregation, a real-life congregation in Thornton, Colorado. I'm not just some um, fly-by-night um, Bible teacher that's hiding out in my basement, you know, teaching uh, whatever comes into my head, whatever's being beamed in my skull directly from the Holy Spirit, and I'm just sharing it with you. No, that's not how it works. Uh, I'm accountable to a real-life uh, group of people in uh, Thornton, Colorado. As you can see on my screen right now, I've got the website of The Harvest pulled up. We'd love to have you join us either in person or online. You can find us online at www.graftedin.com. And from the homepage, as you can see on my screen now, we've got recent sermons. Pastor Mark is going through a kind of a sermon series that began around Passover. And he's working way through, of course, the season that we're in. Um, through the counting of the Omer as we have an, a view towards Pentecost or Shavuot on the horizon. And so um, the themes of Passover abound. Freedom from the tyranny of lies. Excuse me, I got something in my throat here. Alrighty. And uh, so we'd be delighted if you can't join us in line, at least go online. Uh, if you can't join us in person, at least go online and uh, check out our um, YouTube videos that Pastor Mark is conducting there. Speaking of online, I've got my own Torah teaching website as well that I'd uh, love to have you come visit. Uh, don't have to get up and go anywhere, just you're as close as your own internet connection. Go to tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And uh, click, click around through all the links that you see on your screen right now. Um, most of my commentaries are in written form, but these days I've been pretty busy uh, turning them into uh, audio commentaries, MP3 files, iTunes, podcasts, things like that, as well as YouTube videos. Speaking of YouTube videos... I've got a YouTube channel online as well. Find me online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate Tor Ministries. That's my YouTube channel. And as you can see from my screen there, I'm pretty busy uh, uploading things uh, just about every day. I think there's only one day a week when I'm not uploading something. But I'm pretty busy and I'm glad to be able to share uh, these resources with you and uh, to be able to bless you. If you visit my YouTube channel, make sure you do these five things for me. I'm going to flash these on the screen real quick and you can just uh, uh, be reminded. Number one, hit the little red subscribe button. That way you are uh, become you become a family member, right? Number two, hit the thumbs up bell for notification. I'm sorry, not the thumbs up. Hit the bell for notifications so that you receive notifications when I upload new video those. And then number three, hit the little thumbs up for, uh, for um, 
It shows that you like the video that you're watching. Um, of course, you're welcome to hit the thumbs down if you don't like it. That's well. But tell me why, right? That's the next thing, the fourth thing. Leave a comment and tell me what you liked and what you didn't like, what you agree with, what you disagree with. Help me out here, right? Let's interact with one another. And then the fifth and final thing is um, share the content with your friends and family member. Hit that little, there's like a little arrow pointing off to the right side when you're watching a video down there that you can share it with your friends on social media and things like that. And that would be great. These are the um, live internet studies that I bring to you uh, week after week. Let me just scroll down and give you some brief details real quick so you can uh, be informed. As I mentioned, this is episode number 137, and the recording date is May the 3rd, 2021. That's according to the USA date. If you'd like to meet with us, set your clock against the um, central time zone. We meet every Monday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m., so 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Sometimes we go a little bit over. The hour-long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments primarily. There's the Romans 14 Unplugged Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my, we're in part 54 tonight, and we're working our way through some supplemental material by um, Tim Haig. We'll pick up that again tonight. Segment two is the a study on the Trinity. It's called Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two. Yahweh and Yeshua, part 71, is the um, section tonight. And then after the study is over, uh, close to the very end, I should say after the two segments are over, and after we, we uh, read some liturgy, we'll watch a featured YouTube video, short video, usually it's about anywhere from three to five minutes long, and this time it will be on the Numbers 6, 24 through 26, Aaronic Blessing or Aaronic Benediction Passage. So um, I hope you'll be blessed by that video. So be sure to stick around towards the end of the study to catch all of those details. And then lastly, and but quite important, is the um, platform I use is Skype. I don't use Zoom or, or uh, Meetings or, or any of the other um, platforms um, or even uh, YouTube's uh, uh, live streaming. I use Skype. So if you're interested in joining us for the live studies, get access to Skype somehow. You don't need to sign up and create an account or even install the software on your device if you're using just a computer, desktop or laptop, something like that. But the thing you will definitely need is the Skype group link, which you can get from me. And the easiest way to get it is to go to my website at tatesatora.com, scroll all the way down to the very bottom of the website to that section that's black that you can see on my screen right now. It says weekly Parashar archives. Scroll down there, click the little icon where you can see right now there's a little arrow pointing to it. It says email. That little link is my email address. If you click that you can send me an email and you can request a Skype link and I'll be more than happy to share it with you so that you can join us for some of the exclusives that the Skype study offers. Namely, after the study is over, we keep the microphones open. I shut off the recorder, but I keep the microphones open and we dialogue with one another, the students and, and myself, and we share thoughts and ideas and corrections and comments and questions. Sometimes we go for 15 minutes, sometimes we go for another hour. So, But that doesn't get recorded or uploaded anywhere, so if you'd like to interact with people uh, in different parts of the world, this is the way that um, you can join us each week. And then lastly, if the Lord is blessing you to be a blessing to other people, if you've got um, fun 
ones that you can share with other people, then I would be delighted to be on the receiving end of those gifts. Uh, you can click the little yellow donate button and, and securely um, and safely donate to me and my ministry and help me out during this difficult time that I'm in during the pandemic and unemployment and things like that. I'd be sure I'd be sure to be blessed um, to receive those. Um, uh, blessings from you. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, it's about 10 minutes into the study. Let's jump right into the Romans 14 unplugged feast and fast and food. Oh my. I wrote a commentary. It is available on my website at tatesitor.com entitled the Romans 14 unplugged. And we've been working our way down through this introductory section using some com- some um, supplementary material as well. I, we use some information from Dr. David Stern who wrote the uh, complete Jewish Bible. We looked at his uh, commentary uh, about a week or two ago. I think it was two weeks ago or so. And now we started looking at some supplemental material from Tim Haig, one of my favorite go-to authors on uh, resources. And tonight we're going to continue working our way through Tim Haig. Eventually, we'll work our way back around to work uh, going through the conclusion section, like you can see on my screen, um, once we uh, finish looking at the supplemental material, the additional material. So let's turn over again to Tim Haig and pick up where we left off last week. We'll probably go this week and maybe next week and maybe the week after and then we'll come back around to my own commentary. Tim Haig's got a lot of information here I want to share with us. He wrote a commentary to the book of Matthew and so that's where I'm pulling some of this information from. I'll flash a little graphic on the screen where you can see Tim's face and some of his resources. His own website is is, a TorahResource.com, and from there you can purchase his Matthew commentary online um, at, uh, at his online uh, bookstore there. And you can download a PDF copy like I've got on my computer right here, or I think there's a you can get the hard copy book that you can have mailed out to you. But let's pick up this commentary where I left off here last week. We're talking about understand, excuse me, understanding and appreciating how when Paul wrote the letter to Romans right the letter that we have now in our in our new testament bibles he wrote to a real life community jews and gentiles in messiah the brothers that we keep talking about the smaller group of immediate recipients of his letter but among of among um, topics that were of his interest. I mean, there's uh, the, the the letter itself is so chock full of, of valuable information that um, you know it just takes years to go through it um, and appreciate the, all the wealth of information that that Paul left for us and that the Holy Spirit superintended. But one of the topics that rises to the forefront that we should be aware of that many of us are not because we're lost in the systematic theological aspect of this letter is the fact that for Paul, he wrote to Jews and Gentiles and Messiah who were um, framed against the backdrop of a larger covenant community known as Israel. So for Paul, the smaller group of Jews and Gentiles known as the body of Messiah, variously known as remnant Israel, variously known as the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, um, you know, the Christians, this group was framed against the already existing group of covenant members known as Israel. Now at this point in time in Paul's writing in the mid-50s of his day, covenant Israel to Paul was unbelieving um, stumbling, uh, non-believing Israel, right? They, they, they weren't, um, national Israel by and large had rejected her Messiah at this point in time. She had not accepted Yeshua. And so it pains Paul to, to try to understand the mind of God that why did she reject 
Yeshua? Why did she not embrace him openly? I mean, what was so 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 displeasing about this Messiah that came? I mean, right? Of course, we can talk about that in a different study. But germane to our study here tonight in the book of Romans and this um, this supplementary material is this idea that for Paul, the kingdom of God slash heaven, the kingdom of heaven slash God, the, the, remember that we talked about last week, go back and listen to last week's, um, uh, or watch last week's YouTube video, go to my um, YouTube channel and click on the most recent video right there, episode number 136, and listen to that. Um, germane to our study is that um, for Paul, uh, unbelieving Israel was still God's chosen people. She was still the olive tree to which the um, uh, uh, wild olives were grafted to. She, she still represented the visible people of God in that generation. She still represented the Abrahamic uh, family to which the promises were being poured through and out from. So the church, if I can use air quotes with my fingers, you can't see them right now, um, the church was brought into proximity within Israel. And for Paul, there's this responsibility, I'm setting up the backdrop for what we're about to read, there's this responsibility of the Gentile Christian members of this family to continue to reach out to these now disenfranchised uh, Jewish members of covenant Israel. Indeed, it's one big family, even though we've got some estrangement going on, even though we've got some some um, tension going on, some friction going on because of our differences. That's the point that I'm trying to bring up and highlight in our study and that I want you to take notice of when you're reading through the book of Romans. Particular, we're reading and studying Romans chapter 14, right? That's my study. But chronologically, the letter, if you just laid out in front of you, and this works nicely in, in, your, in the chapter breakdowns that we have for us, if we can um, accept the layout of the letter itself in front of us, then chapters 9, 10, and 11 come before chapter 14, last time I checked. That means that Paul's um, impassioned plea to unbelieving, stumbling national Israel in chapters 9 through 11 is on his mind, even though he's writing chapter 14, explaining to these two groups, weak and strong, your weak, you know, the brother who's weak in faith, um, you know, welcome him, but not to quarrel over his opinions. Uh, one person believes he can eat one, anything. One person eats only vegetables. One person esteems one day as special. The other esteems every day, every day alike. It's obvious that he's got two people groups, Jew and Gentile, in mind. Sometimes he's referring to brother Jews and and Gentiles, they're both brother Christians, they're both Christians, and at times there's this this larger context of bro- covenant brotherhood where the um, church is going to be interacting with unbelieving Jews at the synagogue level or at some of the, the, the home group meetings. Um, you remember, remember, the split between the church and the synagogue had not taken place yet when Paul wrote this letter. So Christianity was a subset of Judaism. It was a, um, a sect of Judaism, is the way it's described in the New Testament. So that's our backdrop. So that was a long kind of introduction. Now we're ready to jump right into Tim Higgs' uh, study. And how this impacts us with this phrase, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. And we looked at last week, just kind of some of the raw data, how the phrase is very exclusive to, to Matthew, kingdom of heaven, Malkut Shemaim in the Hebrew. And yet, this carries over into the other apostolic writings, and in particular in Paul's writings, it impacts the way Paul writes. How does Paul understand this phrase, kingdom of heaven slash God, and what would he like to convey to his readership is the importance of this phrase. That's what 
is of interest for us today, how it ties us back into the book of Romans. Here's what Tim Haig has to say. We're going to read some of this tonight. We won't finish it tonight. Um, we'll, we'll just kind of um, work our way through it. We pipe, we'll most definitely pick this up next week and maybe in the week after, and then we'll um, jump over, back over to my own study. Here's what Tim has to say. As you can see on my screen, starting at the highlighted section. It is clear then when we take a survey of the kingdom language in the Apostolic Scriptures, the, the New Testament, that the kingdom of heaven is indeed, quote, already and not yet, end quote. Now let me pause. For Paul, when he read through his own Tanakh, his own prophetic scriptures, he realized that God had made promises to corporate Israel that had not yet come to pass yet in their fullest sense. And yet, at the same time, at the arrival of Messiah Yeshua in, in Paul's time, right in the first century, the promises that he read about were being actualized right before his very eyes, and yet not in their fullest sense. So we could say we had the earnest of them. We had the down payment. We had the the um, uh, the beginnings of the end. Uh, I, I heard one pastor say it this way, the future had invaded the present. How's that for a kind of a sci-fi title, right? Uh, the future invades the present. In Paul's day, when he read through the scriptures, when he read through his um, apostolic, I'm sorry, when he read through his prophet, prophetic promises, he realized that there were these great and grand kingdom of heaven promises that were um, given to Israel of old, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the blessing of of Israel to the nations, the uh, proliferation of the knowledge of God throughout the earth, and the the um, the uh, the what do we say the going forth of Torah, like we read about in Isaiah chapter two, all of that were was was a a, a a a package of glorious promises that for Paul and for others like him in his day they read those with anticipation that someday this would come to pass and yet with the arrival of Messiah with the coming of Yeshua into the world the promises were actually being actualized on an individual level but not on a corporate level yet so the future wasn't so far away the end times had already begun and yet they had not come to their fullness so there's this now and not yet aspect that's what I mean by uh, the future is here already, but it's not yet here. It's here in seminal form, in seed form. It's here in individual form, right? Individuals are enjoying the fullness, particularly with the Gentiles coming in to um, the promises of God and joining Israel and joining the people of God and uh, partaking of the Spirit of God and, and the covenants of God and the, the, you know enjoying even the, the commandments of God. All of this indicated that the end is here. The end, uh, I'm sorry, the end is here. That sounds so apocalyptic, right? Um, <laughs> the end times are upon us. And not in a bad way, but in a good way, right? So uh, we're living in the end times right now. The end times have been going on. The end of days, the Achet Hayamim in the Hebrew, the end of days has been going on for the last 2,000 years. Who would have thought that the end of days would be so long, right? We thought it was going to be like some short time period at the end of our at the end of history, but actually it's, it's been ongoing because it was initiated with the coming of Messiah into the world and the bringing in of the Gentiles near to God, and now um, we need to see Israel get on board with this end time um, uh, salvation history program. So let's keep picking up that theme. That's what we're looking at, and that's why we're studying this supplementary material. Tim Hay continues, the kingdom has arrived and that the king has come and in his coming he has accomplished all that is necessary for the complete and full realization of the reign of God upon the earth yet 
Such application of the accomplished reality is being worked out in the course of human history. That's why I said it's been 2,000 years ongoing. In each person, in each place where the righteous reign of Messiah is seen, there the kingdom of God is known, right? Yeshua's kingdom is invisible within us, and yet at the same time, there is a visible kingdom that if you read through the prophets, should be manifest soon one day. We are looking forward to the kingdom coming to earth, and yet at the same time, in Messiah, the kingdom is already within us. It's in me right now. It's in you. If you name the name of Yeshua as your Messiah, as your Lord and Savior right now, then the kingdom is in you. You don't have to wait. The kingdom is within you. And yet at the same time, when you read through your Old Testament scriptures, and you should be reading your Old Testament scriptures, then there is an aspect of the kingdom that is future. So, it's this aspect, Tim Hicks says, the fullness of his reign will be marked by the salvation of Israel. Read Romans 11.25. Remember, keep in mind that Romans 14 comes after Romans 9-11. through 11. So when Paul's writing to the weak and the strong in Romans 14, he has already written chapters 9 through 11, the idea of, of the olive tree theology and the idea that is that um, the Gentile Christians have this responsibility to reach out to the disenfranchised Jewish people and to continue to witness to them and try and bring them into a knowledge of Messiah for the sake of building up the kingdom. So in Romans 11.25 and following, we have this idea of the salvation of Israel. Tim Hague's quotes and says, for the kingdom in its most basic sense is, you ready for it? The fulfillment of the covenant promises to the covenant people. This is why it's so important, in my understanding, when you're reading through the book of Romans, particularly through the sections that start um, talking about Jews and Gentiles or imply that that's the audience directly, like we have in Romans 14, it's so important that you keep in mind that the covenant people, even though they are unbelieving, even though they're stumbling, even though they are weak in faith, even though the Jewish people have not yet accepted Messiah, many of them are deliberating. They're still trying to decide, is he the one that we've been reading about, that we've been hoping for, that we're waiting for? Is this Yeshua of Nazareth? Is he the one? They were open to that idea. I believe those are the weak in faith, not people who are keeping Torah yet believe in Jesus. I don't think that's a strong uh, contextual uh, application of the weak in faith. But if we can keep in mind that when Paul's writing to the Christians in Rome, the the brothers, the Jews and Gentiles, he always has in mind that covenant Israel is still on the program. It's not, they've not been shelved, they've not been benched, they've not been set aside, they've not been superseded by the church, they've not been replaced by the new Israel or something to that effect. The covenant promises are still um, uh, yes and amen in Messiah, and they must be actualized by Messiah. I'm not trying to suggest that uh, stumbling Israel can somehow achieve those covenant promises by circumventing Yeshua. God forbid, that's not what I'm teaching. They must go through Messiah. They must accept and embrace him as their Lord and Savior if they are to actualize those promises that God made to them. But the point I'm trying to make is that those covenant promises still apply to a covenant people, and Paul would have the Gentile Christian groups understand their role in salvation history and how they are connected to the greater covenant brotherhood of national Israel, especially when we're looking at that term brother. So let's keep reading through um, Tim Haig. The current expression of the kingdom of God for Paul, then, is likened to the first fruits which anticipates the final harvest. 
Understand what I mean there? Down payment. The first fruits are valid fruit. They're real. They're genuine, right? The, the, the Gentiles coming in to um, these covenant promises with Israel, they're real. They're, they're the genuine deal, right? They're, they're, they're the real deal. They're not fakes. They're real life covenant members along with covenant na- national Israel, even though they're stumbling. They are not a reasonable facsimile, but the genuine thing. Tim Hake says, yet in terms of the complete harvest, this awaits the future when Messiah returns and reigns. So Yeshua is coming back, and he's coming back to um, bring the covenant promises that God, his father, made with Israel. He's going to bring those to reality. And national Israel, even though she's stumbling right now, even though she's in a state of unbelief, even though she's rejected Yeshua one day, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, around verse 25, 26, 27, somewhere around there, all Israel shall be saved. All Israel shall be brought to her knees and brought to a place where she accepts Messiah. Whether that means every single uh, Jewish Israelite, I don't imagine that it has to mean that, but it could mean that, but I'm not banking on that. The point is, the representative group of national Israel will be known by her acceptance of Messiah one day, as, as opposed to today. Um, it's just common knowledge that Jews don't believe in Jesus, right? That's just the, the standard um, accepted point of fact if you ask rabbinic and religious Jews. Do we believe in Yeshua? Jesus? Of course not. He's 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 uh, maybe a, 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 a savior for the Gentiles, but he's certainly not the savior for we Jews. But that's going to change someday. Let's pick up Tim Hegg's um, uh, studies once more. We'll continue reading down a little bit uh, more through this. Let me see how far I want to read. Um... Yeah, we'll read at least one more paragraph tonight, and then I think we'll um, uh, leave off and we'll pick this up again next week. Starting where it's highlighted. Tim Haig uh, continues, We must conclude then that the kingdom of heaven slash God, remember, the word heaven there is a circumlocution for God, as we noticed when we looked at the Matthew references last week. Go back and listen to episode number 136. The kingdom of heaven means the kingdom of God. It was just a polite way of saying the kingdom of God without actually using God's name or making reference to the name Elohim or Yahweh or Hashem or something. Um, so that's what we, mean, what we mean by kingdom of heaven slash God. This concept was taught by our master and his apostles as already existing yet having future dimensions as well. Again, the now yet not. The now but not yet aspect to the whole New Testament. Right? The New Testament is now and the the, 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 the renewed covenant aspect is now and yet for Israel it's still future. So it's now but it's not yet. That's what we're talking about. Tim Hague continues, in terms of God's all-pervasive providence, the kingdom was assured because the king had appeared and would accomplish everything necessary to bring about the kingdom's final and full expression. Yet, the complete realization of the kingdom and all its dimensions would await the end of days. Like I said, the Alkrit Hayamim, as it's described in the Apostolics, in the, um, the, the prophetic writings. Tim Hague continues, all who would receive the king would enter the kingdom but those who reject him would be cast out. In this way, the kingdom of heaven incorporates both the physical restoration of Israel and those who would join her through faith in her reigning king, Messiah. For in the end, Israel comes to repentance on a national scale, confessing the pierced one to be their king. Did you understand the the, the um? the importance of that statement that uh, Tim Hague just made there? When we're talking about the kingdom, it's so easy for us to, here in living in the modern 21st century, to think that the kingdom of heaven is just all of the Christians who have come into um, acceptance of Jesus as their Lord, and that's really all there is to it. There's, everyone else is outside, and we're the only ones that are in. 
And in one sense, that, that's, that is a reality. Unless you accept the king, how can you rightfully call yourself a citizen of his kingdom? But yet the reality, the mystery of it, is that Gentiles have been brought near to the existing covenant people of God, and that covenant membership for the existing people group is only a down payment. It's only a foretaste of what it really should be. It's, a, it's, it's an earthly representation of really what should be true in the heavenlies. We who have accepted Messiah, without confusing you all, we, um, we enjoy kingdom membership at the spiritual level, at the heavenly level, at the eternal level. And yet, national unbelieving stumbling Israel, they're still citizens of the earthly kingdom that God has established with his people. Covenant membership is theirs at the national level, at the earthly level, at the temporal level. Right, it's going to expire once they die, but it's supposed to lead them into a, an acceptance of covenant membership and kingdom membership at the spiritual level. It was not supposed to be exclusive, exclusive from one another. So here's the point: Paul was a national Israelite. He's a Jew by ethnicity. He's a Jew by birth. Um, that was his heritage, right? That's his upbringing. That's his his um, um, uh, you know his. His mother and father were Jewish, therefore he's Jewish, right? Makes sense. So when Paul accepted Yeshua as Messiah, he didn't leave his national membership in Israel behind to join some new group membership known as the church or the Christians or something like that. That's the point I'm trying to make. He simply embraced covenant membership at a personal level, and his relationship with God became personal, and he became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven at the spiritual slash heavenly level, right? He acknowledged the spiritual king, Messiah, Yeshua, but he didn't relinquish his covenant membership within national Israel. He's still a national Israelite. He's still a Jew. He's still um, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Like he confesses. In fact, he's even still a Pharisee. And so that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, Tim Haig concludes in his final paragraph that we'll look at tonight, and then we'll turn to our next study. The kingdom of heaven is thus neither entirely internal, that is ethical, nor external, political, or geographical, but both. For the return of Israel to her land is in conjunction with her repentance and the establishment of the covenant on her behalf. We like to sometimes imagine it's all about the body of Messiah, and it's all about um, getting people saved, and it's all about getting people to confess Jesus as Lord, and everything is hunky-dory from there. And we often kind of just write off Israel. We just forget about them. We don't remember that the kingdom of heaven involves them. It involves bringing these covenant promises that were given to the prophets of Israel to pass through Messiah, their king. It involves bringing them into a relationship with Yeshua so that they can actualize and embrace the kingdom in its fullest sense. So it's so important as we're reading through books like uh, Romans, and particularly Romans 14, when we're talking about the weak in faith, the strong in faith, people who have these preferences, these people who have these differences, that Paul envisioned two people working together with one another, not excluding one another, not Jews on one side of the street keeping their holy days and their food restrictions, and then Gentile Christians over on the other side of the street keeping their worship days and their table fellowship rules, and the two are mutually exclusive from one another, yet they're both convinced in their own mind, right? That's not the way Paul envisioned it. That's not the kingdom of God at work. That's, uh, that's confusion. Um, Paul envisioned 
the family of Abraham brought together Jew and Gentile in Messiah, eventually all of us in Messiah. But even outside of Messiah, we have the national unbelieving stumbling Israel who's disenfranchised because of the uh, the uh, the edict that Emperor Claudius enacted in, in, just shortly before Paul wrote his letter that expelled many, some say all, but many um, or just a sizable amount of Jews from Rome. And then five years later, they were able to, to re-enter into Rome and start rebuilding their communities again. Either way you slice it, they are the minority in the Roman population and the Roman churches, that's to be sure. So we understand that. But the um, importance of our study is that, yes, they've been um, uh, kind of um, downsized, right? They, they, they were uh, disenfranchised, they were um, um, uh, reduced in their numbers because of that tragic uh, uh, expulsion rule. But that doesn't write them off of salvation history. That doesn't write them out of the social responsibility of Gentile Christians to continue to reach out to them, not for the purpose of turning them into Christians who have abandoned their Jewish heritage, but for the purpose of helping them to actualize the fullness of the kingdom of God as they internally embrace Messiah, their king, and yet await the kingdom of God to be manifest here on earth. Let's finish Tim Hag up to, uh, with this last paragraph, and then we'll turn to our next uh, part of our study. So, Israel needs to um, continue to look for the return of the king in a larger national sense. That's still on the horizon, still future. The rule and reign of God is thus seen in its fullness, Tim Haig says, when the Torah is written on the heart, not when the Torah is discarded, not when the Torah is replaced by the supposed law of Christ, not when the Torah is somehow done away with in Messiah, not when the Torah is somehow fulfilled by Jesus so that we Christians don't have to keep it anymore. None of that brings about the fullness of God's promises. Only when the Torah is written in the heart, which does what? Results in outward obedience to the word of the king. Go back and read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 again. And you'll see this is the way that um, uh, God envisioned it. It's the way Paul understood it. It's unfortunate that the historic Christian church has inherited this theology that teaches that the law has been set aside in Messiah, relaxed by Jesus, set aside by Paul, or um, done away with, no longer under law but under grace, or something to that effect. All of that um, disrupts the kingdom promises, and it, it it, it distorts, is what the word I want to use, I don't want to say disrupts, it distorts the kingdom of heaven as the king establishes his kingdom on earth with national Israel, with the people of God, with the Gentiles brought into the picture, right? Torah is there front and center as well. Uh, and uh, Haig concludes, what is future is the national expression of this new covenant in the descendants of Jacob. That's future. Hasn't happened yet. New covenant for national Israel? Still, They're still waiting for it. New covenant for every individual on planet Earth? It's been ongoing ever since there was a man, a man on the Earth. Every person can um, uh, join new covenant, can um, embrace new covenant reality if they embrace uh, the concept of a Messiah who will personally atone for their sins, namely Yeshua of Nazareth. That's new covenant. It's not something that's time-bound. It's the point I'm trying to make. People in the Old Testament were saved the same way as people in the New Testament are saved. How? By placing their faith in Messiah, whether it's the Messiah who would come or the Messiah who's already come. And uh, Tim Hicks' final uh, statement here that we'll look at tonight, the present expression of the kingdom of heaven is the believing remnant 
who have participated in the new covenant already as the first fruits of the eventual harvest. And that harvest is going to take place in the end. Indeed, as we're working our way through counting the Omer, we're looking at this principle in, in, in uh, effect as well. The Omer count represents the beginning of a larger harvest, the um, barley harvest which began at Passover is going to come to its fullness in the um, in the wheat harvest at uh, Shavuot, and so we bring that first fruit, that Umr Reshit, that first barley offering to them, and we wave it before the Lord closer around the uh, uh, the time period of Passover, right? That's when the Omer count began. We bring this first barley harvest before the Lord and we wave that, that representative first fruit and we say, Lord, this represents a larger harvest 50 days in the future. And so this is kind of like the down payments, the earnest. It's, it represents the, the first part of something that's larger. And as we count our Omer, right, a one, two, three, four, five, and we count the days with this anticipation of um, landing at uh, Pentecost, 50 days in the future from Shav- from uh, Passover, right, from Pesach to Pentecost, then when we reach, when we arrive at Shavuot, we have another harvest celebration, but this time it's not the, the barley harvest, it's the wheat harvest, right? So, um, I think I'm getting that right. Barley harvest up front, wheat harvest at the end. I, I believe I got that right. Sometimes I get those two confused, but I think I'm right here. I'll have to go back and look that up later. But the down payment aspect leads to the greater fulfillment. And that's what's going on with Paul. He realizes that the Gentiles coming into covenant Israel represent the down payment aspect of this kingdom of God aspect as it's being um, played out before Israel's very eyes. Even though she is national, uh, even though her uh, blindness is national, even though she's stumbling, even though she's not in a place where she's received Yeshua, nevertheless, the Gentiles represent that remnant of Israel as um, that part of Israel is embracing Jesus. And that's why it's important to locate the church, so to say, within Israel and not outside of Israel. Because the church represents the down payment, the first fruits of the part of Israel that's going to eventually overtake the whole one day when all Israel shall be saved. Omain, Omain. And that'll do it for our uh, study in Romans 14, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And um, let's take a look at the uh, verses we've got lined up for us tonight. Uh, Let me get those right pages pulled up. There we go. And um, we're going to start by looking. Let me drop all the way down to the bottom of this chart uh, in my study that uh, Karm has uh, put together for us. As you can see on my screen right now, we've been working our way through the Bible passages that bring together the truths of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as one God who nevertheless interacts with man through the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Three separate persons, not one God simply swapping out masks whenever he chooses. That's modalism. We reject that. And certainly not three separate gods who have these interactions with, with mankind. We would call that, um, well, we'd call it idolatry to be sure, but um, uh, tritheism, tritheism, not three separate gods. That's not what Trinity is. It's one God with three persons. As difficult as it is to embrace that truth. And the way we interact with that is we look at passages in the Bible. That's what we're doing. We find words and terms and 
attributes and characteristics of this one God, but we find these words and terms applied across the three persons in such a way that causes us to realize that when it comes to discussions on identity, if we could talk kind of um, uh, either um, kind of ontologically or epistemologically, then when, we t- when we're talking about terms of identity, we, it becomes apparent that the Bible's describing one God, and yet at times a different person is in view. And we're going to look at that tonight. We're going to talk about how that God the Father is our Savior, and yet at the same time, Yeshua, God the Son, is our Savior as well. And that's what we're going to look at. And it's going to be a, it's going to be a detailed study. Now, I've got lots of verses to pull up, so let's just, just strap yourselves in and we'll jump right into it. First of all, Karm only has, if you look at your chart, Karm only has verses outlined for God the Father and God the Son. You're looking at four columns in front of you. The first column, uh, let me just go to the very top so you can see what these mean. The first column is the um, the heading or the characteristic or the title or the attribute that we're, that's in view. And then the second column is... Um, the 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 uh, apply, uh, the application to the Father, God the Father. The th- the uh, third column is the application to the Son, and the fourth column, the fi- the final one, the far right, is the application of these uh, attributes to the Holy Spirit. So let's, with that in mind, we can better understand this table. God the Father is our Savior in First Timothy, and in um, in fact, all throughout First Timothy. We're just going to park out there, and in. For uh, God the Son, we've got 2 Timothy and we've got Titus. And then you'll notice that God the Holy Spirit doesn't show up as our Savior because that's not really the way the Bible portrays him as our Savior. Although, although we're going to find out that our salvation, when we're talking about personal salvation, is intimately and directly linked to the Holy Spirit, as we'll see, and thus his work is necessary to bring about and to actualize genuine salvation. So I've decided to fill in some verses on my own. Although he's not portrayed as the one who... Um, uh, uh, in Acts, salvation, not the agents of salvation. He's, it wasn't the Holy Spirit that hung on the cross and things like that. You guys understand what I'm trying to say there. All right, so let's jump right into the verses. I've decided that instead of jumping into 1 Timothy, and instead of jumping right into the New Testament like most of us are fond of doing, I decided to do like I did last week. And let's jump into the um, what I call the antecedent theology. That is the the theology that preceded our the theology that's in question. So oftentimes we, we look at the New Testament for salvation, but in reality, the Old Testament came before, and the theology of the Old Testament, what it's trying to teach us, forms the background and the foundation for a better understanding of what the New Testament is really teaching us anyway. That's what I mean by antecedent theology. Antecedent refers to something that came before something else. So, or the preceding theology, antecedent theology, preceding means the same thing. So, I want to jump back into the Tanakh first, and let's look at God as the Savior of Israel. That's going to form the framework for understanding God as our Savior in the New Testament, and ultimately understanding Jesus as our Savior as well. What does God say of Isaiah, uh, God does say through Isaiah, of Israel, starting in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3? This shows up all over the place, but I'm just going to focus on one verse for, for brevity's sake. Okay, so um, let's start in this passage right here. God says to Israel, For I am the Lord your God. God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. So God is the Savior of Israel. Now I understand it's a political sense of the word. The word Savior, as we see in the Hebrew over on the right side of the screen, Ki ani Adonai Elohecha, Kadosh Yisrael Moshiecha. I, the Lord, 
am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The final word in my Hebrew there, right there, Mushiecha, is actually where we get the word Mashiach as well. Messiah in English. I am your Moshiach, right? Moshiecha. I'm the Moshiach of you. I'm your Savior. It's where we get Yeshua's name. Yeshua and Mashiach are all rooted in the same uh, same uh, uh, family of words in the Hebrew. Uh, Messiah in English. So, I, the Lord, am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Messiah, right? But the word Savior or salvation or Mashiach or Moshiach, uh, whatever the root is, Yasha, to save and things like that, in the Hebrew as well as in the, the Greek, um, these words can have a range of meanings. So let's just take a look at some of what um, the prophets are trying to get at. Let's first turn and look at this passage in the Greek. This is going to be a relevance for our study in the Apostolic Scriptures later on, which were written in Greek, as we can see the translation from the Hebrew into Greek is going to use some similar words where God the Father is described as our Savior in the Hebrew, which is translated into Greek. The particular Greek rendering is going to be the same term that's applied to Yeshua in the Apostolic Scriptures. Same word for Savior. Let's look at this again. First on your screen, we've got kind of a, uh, I think that's KJV, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, right? And we already looked at the uh, the Hebrew right there. Ki Adonai Elohecha, Kedosh Yisrael Moshiecha. Now, let's look at the Greek right here, right? Uh, let me scroll up a little bit and make it like that, so we can see the English as well below it. So we've got some Greek. This is the Greek of the uh, Hebrew that we looked at earlier. The Greek says, Hati ego kurias hatheasu, Ha hagias Israel ha sozon se. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who saves you. And in the Greek, the Greek word for savior or the one who saves you is sozo. I've highlighted it on my screen right now. Sozo. This is the uh, equivalent of the Hebrew up there, Moshiecha. Um, the uh, the sozo and if I were to click on this word this Greek word right here sozo this particular tool would open this page sozo and this is the Greek word and if we look here we can see the the um I'm sorry it's sozone I, I'm dropping a, a final noon ha sozone se and the, uh, the the root word is sozo right there and if we click on sozo the 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 root word we can see in this particular tool that I'm reading uh, reading from that the range of meaning when it comes to saving people is to save from death, to keep alive, to preserve, to heal, to cure, to make well, to make whole, to recover from sickness, right? To survive, to endure, to escape from punishment, to carry off safe or rescue from danger, to bring one safe to. And we can see some other range as well. So the, the point is, Initially, what we can see is when we're talking about salvation, when God says of Israel, I am your Savior, the one who saves you, it doesn't necessarily right away from context indicate that God is saving them from their personal sins, like we think of Jesus as my Savior. Instead, the context demands that it's likely he's talking about some sort of political salvation save, uh, uh, from their national enemies. You know, he talks about Egypt and Ethiopia and things like that. Um, and indeed, if you go back and read the context of Isaiah's 
a prophecy here, it's within the context of um, some political and uh, uh, you know wartime type struggles where Israel has been taken captive and and she needs saving from her national enemies, right? From people groups who have subjugated her and and carried her off into captivity. That's the type of salvation that's in view there. But the point I'm trying to bring up is it's the same terminology when we talk about saving. So that's our first. Um, uh, uh, background that I want to launch from. Now, let's start looking at the New Testament passages where it talks about God as our Savior, Jesus as our Savior. But before we do that, I want to bring in um, some notes on a concept that is extremely important when we're looking at this idea of God as our Savior, particularly Jesus as our Savior. There are two passages in the Apostolic Scriptures that are really important when talking about the idea of, is God our Savior? Is Jesus our Savior? Is Jesus God because he's our Savior? There's an, a, a gentleman who, who, who's uh, since gone um, on, uh, passed on, by the name of Granville Sharp. And he's got this rule. It's a Greek grammar rule. Let me read part of this for you. And uh, this will help us appreciate what we're going to be looking at here, particularly when we look at two passages, one in uh, Titus and one in Second Peter. This is a, a website that I've got pulled up. Um, the information was supplied by Dr. James White, who is a, um, a, a, a very well-established uh, Trinitarian apologetic theologian, um, one of my favorites as well. Uh, he is uh, the founder of uh, Alpha and Omega Ministries. I think I'll put a picture of him on the screen here in post-production. Let's read some of his notes here, um, and uh, this will help us understand uh, this rule as it bears relevance to the verses we're about to look at. This information sheet is divided into two sections. The first is a brief, basic discussion of what is known as Granville Sharp's Rule. This rule is very important in translating and understanding Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1, as well as other passages. And as these passages bear directly on the discussions of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, we feel Christians should be informed on the subject. The second section of this paper is a much more in-depth discussion of the same subject, providing references for those familiar with the Greek language and the translation of the New Testament. All right, so that's the opening paragraph. Let's look at, we'll probably only look at section one. I don't really need to get too deep into this, but I hope you don't get lost in this. Just listen up. Basically, Granville Sharp's rule states that when you have two nouns, which are not proper names, such as Cephas or Paul or Timothy, which are describing a person, and the two nouns are connected by the word and, and the first noun has the article the, while the second does not, both nouns are referring to the same person. And this goes on to say, in our text, this is determined by the words God and Savior at Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1. God has the article, it is followed by the word for, and, and the word Savior does not have the article. Hence, both nouns are being applied to the same person, Jesus Christ. In other words, Yeshua in the, in the verses in question is both God and Savior. Let's continue, starting right there. This rule is exceptionless. One must argue solely on theological grounds against these passages. There's truly no real grammatical obligation that can be raised. Objection. Not that many have not attempted to do so and are still trying. However, the evidence is overwhelming in favor of the above interpretation. Let's look at some of the evidence from the text itself. Okay, so what we're going to look at is two passages, one in Titus and one in Second Peter, that talk about God and Yeshua, I'm sorry, the term God and the term Savior as applies to Yeshua. And so um, uh, I think I will 
jump right into the passages now, and we'll, we'll jump back and reference these passages, uh, this explanation if we need to. Okay, so you guys, understanding where I'm going with this, there's a Greek grammar rule that when applied correctly and understood correctly, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a Greek grammar, so don't fault me for where I miss some aspects, but I think I've got this down part. What the Greek is trying to convey to us is that these two titles are applied to one individual in the passage, not broken up in, into two separate individuals. So let's begin to look at this. Let's back up first and look at a passage. The first one that uh, Carm referenced was 1 Timothy 1.1. This passage says right here on the page, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So first we have a passage that clearly references God as our Savior. And um, in Greek, this would put God as our soteros, our soteros, like you can see in the Greek. Now, if I were to click on this tool, what I would end up with is this page. Soter is the root word for the soteros that I just looked at earlier. It's Strong's number 4990. And we can see here that it references soter, a savior, a deliverer. Right? It's a noun, a savior, a deliverer, a preserver. And if I scroll down a little bit into the help word studies, we can see that this, this noun soter is derived from a Greek verb, sozo, which means to save. Now, does that sound familiar? Sozo? Yeah, it should, because we looked at this just earlier. It's the root of the word that we're looking at in the Septuagint. Sozo, to save from death, right? In the Isaiah passage, in the Greek, God describes himself as the sozone, right? He's the sozone of Israel. He's the savior of Israel. So we're simply showing that in the Greek, it's the same word used in the Apostolic Scriptures. The, the writers don't switch to a different word. God is the soter of Israel. That's what we're trying to say here. And he's the soter in this same Greek passage here in 1 Timothy. Right? He is, the, he is God our Savior. First passage. Let's continue going. The second passage that Karm pulls up is 1 Timothy 2.3. In 1 Timothy 2.3... Timothy writes, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, right? God our Savior. And in the Greek, we have, let's back up to that phrase, right there, tu soteras hemon theu, tu soteras hemon theu, the Savior of us, God, if I were to wouldn't translate it back over from the Greek back over into English right? God is our Savior. And if we can see again, it's the same root uh, Greek word, Strong's 4990, the soteros. Same root word that we saw is used in the Septuagint rendering from Isaiah. God is our Savior. Let's keep going. In 1 Timothy 4.10, Carm pulls up another passage. To this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pull up the Greek right here. Hos estin soter panton anthropon malista piston. So he is the Savior of all people, right? The soter panton anthropon. 
He's the, let me highlight the Greek word, he's the soter. He's the soter. Same root Greek word, Strong's 49.9 there. God is the savior. It's the same word we looked at in the Septuagint rendering. So we've got consistency so far in this root word savior. You don't really have to know the Greek to appreciate what we're teaching here, but it does help sometimes to go back and look at Greek words and see if certain words get swapped out. Sometimes they do. Sometimes a synonym word gets used. No problem. But in this case, it's the same Greek word used throughout. And then uh, from here, Paul or uh, uh, Carm is going to begin to uh, jump into how that God the Son is our Savior. In 2 Timothy 1.10, that's the first passage they pull up. I want to back up into the context and start at verse 8 and read verse 8, 9, and 10 and show you how to better appreciate God the Son. In all of these passages, let me jump back over to the chart. In 2 Timothy 1.10, in Titus 1.4, and in Titus 3.6. In all three of the passages that Karm brings out, all three of them highlight the salvation aspect of Yeshua, Jesus our Savior, but they also, within a short context, space from the, 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 the initial verse in, in question, they also reference God as our Savior. Isn't that neat? They use the same Greek word to describe God as our Savior, and then within a short space, maybe a few verses, or sometimes in the same verse, they reference Jesus as our Savior. You understand how there's this, this, this joining of God and Jesus, the Son and the, the Father and the Son, in the aspect of Trinity, in his triunity, in his complex nature. Let's just look at this. Second Timothy, starting in chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who's the context at the end of the passage? God, with a, with a comma, which means we can continue, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Who saved us? God saved us. And we could see here in the um, Greek, Strong's number 4982 is related in number to the Strong's 4990 that we looked at earlier. Oops, don't want to click on that. Um, the um, Sosantas is the, the one who saved us, right? The Savior, who saved us? Who did? God saved us. Let's keep reading. God who saved us and called us to a holy living, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he, God, gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So the context is still, God is the one who saved us in Christ Jesus. And now look at the clincher verse in verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, wait a minute, Timothy. I thought you said it's God who saved us. Why is it now that our Savior is Jesus Christ? Right? Let me just go like this. Um, there we go. To soteras hemon Christu Yesu, the Savior of us, Christ Jesus. And if I were to hover over the root word for Savior, the Greek is, what, what do you think it is? You think it's a different Greek word? Let's look at this. You can see it on my screen here. Strong's number 4990, soteros. Same Greek word describing God. And in the Old Testament, God, the Savior. It's the same Greek word. Now Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. So in the same context, in the same writer, God is our Savior, and yet Yeshua is our Savior. Let's keep going. Now we have Titus 
1 verse 4 and the same concept is happening starting in verse 3 first we'll get to verse 4 in a moment look at what Titus says in verse 3 and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which with which I have been entrusted by the command of who God our Savior let me pull it up in the Greek here to soteros hemon theu the Savior of us God what do you think the Greek word is for Savior it's soteros 4990 is the Strong's number. You can look it up on your own. So the Savior of us is God. The 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 um the Hamon is the of us. But then look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Eh? Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's see what it has to see uh say here. Um Theu patras kai Christu Yesu to soteras hemon through God the Father and Christ Jesus the Savior of us. What Greek word is being used for Savior for Jesus? Strong's number 4990, soteras. Same Greek word. Well, I thought God was our Savior up here in verse 3. But no, Jesus is our Savior down here in verse 4. So we see the overlapping of the two. Once again, God is our Savior, but Jesus is our Savior. Keep in mind, all of this is within the context of God already telling himself to Israel that I'm your Savior. Yes, I know it's a different type of Savior in context, political salvation. But it still doesn't change the fact that he can and is the Savior of those other different kinds as well. There's only one Savior is the point I'm trying to make. Let's keep going. Now it's within that context. Um that we can begin to work our way towards the famous uh, two passages that I mentioned at the beginning with the uh, Granville Sharp rule. Titus 2, verse um, 13. But let's back up to verse 11 to get the context. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So, terios in the Greek, bringing salvation. It's rooted in the same Greek word for Savior as we looked at earlier. Salvation for all people. So God brings salvation. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives at the present in the present age. And then from there, we have the famous verse, Titus 2.13. You ready for it? Here it is, the bombshell. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The waiting for the blessed hope of our great, look at this, our great, let me highlight that part, um, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, let's go like that. Tu megalutheu kai soteros himon Christu Yesu. In the Greek, the megalu, the mega, the great theu, the great God, Kai, and soteros, Savior, Hamon, Savior of us, Christu, Yesu, Christ, Jesus. So, Titus doesn't have any problem calling Yeshua our great God, to megalu theu. So, this is evident by the Granville Sharp rule. It doesn't mean it's the great God and, you know, as if there should be a comma before there. The Granville Sharp rule is trying to explain that these titles are applied because of the Greek grammar to one person, not two persons. The great God is a title that's applied to the same person as Savior, which is, according to context, 
Jesus Christu, Christ Jesus. That's the bombshell. All right, if you can handle that. Let's continue looking at this through Titus chapter 3. Uh, Karm tells us in Titus 3, 6 that Jesus is our Savior as well. We'll start in verse uh, 4 and work our way to verse um, uh, 6. Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God our Savior? God our Savior? Let's look at the Greek. To soteros himon theu. In fact, by now you should be like experts in Greek because I keep having us to have to look at this. The soteros is Strong's number 4990 over here in the Greek. Same word that we looked at earlier. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our soteros, God our Savior appeared, and then verse 5, he saved us, right? Same uh, root words again. He saved us not because of works, right? done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 6, whom he poured out, whom he who? God. Whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Greek says, dia Jesu Christu, to soteros hemon, through Christ through Jesus Christ, the Savior of us, woodenly from the Greek. But wait a minute, wait a minute, please, Ariel, wait a minute. Isn't God our Savior in verse 4? Yes, he is. Then who's the Savior in verse 6? Well, that's Jesus, that's Yeshua. See how they're working together. God is our Savior, Yeshua is our Savior. So that's what's in view here when we're looking at passages like this. Now, that's where Karm's chart leaves off. But I decided to bring in a few more references, just two more. We're, we still have to look at the Second Peter passage, but first let's look at Second um, Thessalonians chapter two. Paul, writing to the um, church at Thessalon Thessalonica, talks about the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to salvation, and I think this is important for us as well. We're not going to dwell too long on this because there isn't a lot of passages that support the idea that the Holy Spirit is our Savior, but. We do have passages that link our salvation to the reality of the Holy Spirit within us. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul says, But we ought also, I'm sorry, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth through sanctification by the spirit so we're saved through sanctification by the spirit we got the greek over here i'll pull up sorry about that no, we don't want all of that we just want that we want we have the greek saying soterion in hagiasmo pneumatos kai piste aletheos we are saved through, literally in, the Greek word is in there, soterion in. We're saved in sanctification by the Holy Spirit and the belief in truth. And the root word for salvation there, or saved, is rooted, is Strong's number 4991. You can even see the numbers, 4990, soterion, uh, 4991 Soterion and Soterios, like we've been looking at um, earlier with salvation and, and Savior. They're all rooted in the same uh, Greek words, you know, um, sozo and things like that, soter being the root words. What's the point of all of this? The point is that the Bible is trying to explain to us that there's only one Savior and that God, the being known as God, is that one and only Savior. And yet the agency of salvation, as 
uh, details mankind is the Son of God. The Son of God is the one who died for our sins. He's the one that went to the cross and became the substitute. And thus, salvation is God's, and yet it is Yeshua the Son who is the agency of salvation, the name that we call upon for salvation. And yet at the same time, it's through sanctification by the Spirit that this salvation, this saving aspect is made a reality as well. So we can see all three persons have a role to play and an important function for us to actualize when we're talking about salvation. Let's look at that final verse, and then we'll close down this part of our study tonight. In the, um, in the, uh, uh, the, um, what did I talk about? The Granville Sharp rule, we had, uh, remember, let me scroll to the top, we had two passages. We had the Titus 2, 13, and then we have the 1 Peter 1, 1 passage. Let's turn to the 1 Peter 1, 1. Let me work in reverse for, for, for a second. Instead of looking at second, second, I, I said First Peter. I meant uh, Second Peter there. Let's look at Second Peter one eleven. Let me drop down to there first and show you something. In Second Peter one eleven, the writer Peter says, "For in this way there will be uh, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." So, we have Tukuriu Hemon Kai Soteras Yesu Christu. In the uh, Greek, shows up right there. Tukuriu, the Lord, Hemon of us, Kai, and Soteras, Savior, Yesu, Jesus, Christu, Christ. Nobody has a problem recognizing that Lord and Savior, in this passage, in this verse, are titles that both apply to the noun at the very end of the verse, Jesus Christu, Jesus Christ. No one has a problem. We all understand from the Greek, and every English translation says that. No one breaks apart and says, um, the eternal kingdom of our Lord, comma, and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as if the word Lord there is applying to God and Savior is applying to Jesus. I don't know of any translation that does that. Everyone recognizes Lord and Savior, are both titles applied to one person. And the Greek construction to kurio hemon kai soteras Jesu Christu is very straightforward. Now, with that in mind, let's go back up to the very first passage, uh, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of who? You ready for it? Of God of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the Unitarians want to add a comma after the word God, so that it says, with ours by the righteousness of our God, comma, and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, if we look at the Greek construction, to theu hemon kai soteras Jesu Christu, the Greek is identical to verse 11 with the exception of the word God in there instead, instead of Lord. And we can see this if I pull up the um, the uh, Granville Sharp uh, uh, reference earlier. Let me just put them side by side here. In verse 1, it's tutheu hemon kai soteras Jesu Christu. The, to the, the God of us and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ. And then verse 11, it's to the kuriu Lord, Hemon of us, Kai and Soteras, Savior, Christ, or Jesus Christ. You can even see it in the transliteration, 
translated to Greek. To the Uhemon Kai Soteras Jesu Christu, to Kuriu Hemon Kai Soteras Jesu Christu. They're nearly identical. In 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 structure they are identical. The only difference is verse one has theu, which is God, and verse eleven has Kuriu, which is Lord. But other than that, everything's identical. And yet, and yet, some translators would have us believe that in verse 1, Peter's saying that God refers to a different person than Savior in verse 1. And yet in verse 11, Lord and Savior refer to the same person. Even though in the Greek, the construction's the same. The grammar's the same, just two different titles. One says God, one says Lord. Are you understanding the impact of the Granville Sharp rule now? It's that in these passages, Peter is explicitly giving us an inside peek into the ontological nature of Yeshua as our very Lord, our very Savior, and our very God. Omain, Omain. And that'll do it for a look at um, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the uh, liturgy for tonight. Let's uh, begin to wind down in our study as we've been going just a little bit over. Let's read the um, Omer liturgy first. We've got some English right there on the screen for you. We've got some translated Hebrew just above that if you care to read that. Uh, this is the blessing that Judaism um, goes through before uh, 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 counting the Omer. This is the blessing of the Omer count itself, and we do this at night. So this is the Omer count blessing for uh, uh, Monday night. The English says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. And the Hebrew says, Baruch Adonai Elohinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotai V'tzivanu Al Sefirat HaOmer Let's drop down now to the actual day that we're counting. In English it says, Today is 37 days, which is five weeks and two days of the Omer. And over on the right side of the page, the Hebrew says, Hayom Shiva Ushloshim Yom Shechem Chamisha Shavuot Yamim La Omer. And that'll do it for the Omer reading blessing. Let's turn now to Ezekiel chapter 36. We've been reading down through this passage for our Omer account. We started in verse 22 a few weeks back, and we're working our way through to about verse 27 or so. So let's read these two verses tonight, verse 26 and 27, and um, we'll continue looking at this as well. We'll even look at some Jeremiah passages next week, perhaps. Ezekiel says, starting in verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, right? This is why we're reading this, because of the, the um, forward-looking view towards Shavuot on the horizon, the celebration of the giving of the words of God at Pentecost, at Sinai, and the um, celebration of the outward spirit in Acts chapter 2, all take place on Shavuot. So we're looking at these spirit passages. I, God says, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And verse 27 says, and I will put my spirit within you. These are promises to corporate Israel. Keep in mind, these are promises that have not come to pass just yet. They're still in the future. And yet, they're something that Israel needs to enjoy. So, future passages. Um, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to do what? Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does God pour out his Holy Spirit so that the people will turn away from Torah? No. 
God pours out his Holy Spirit so that we can actually turn into being obedient to him, obedient to his word, and actually obedient to his uh, written word, his Torah. And that's a wonderful thing for us. Let's look at the um, Hebrew over on the uh, right side of the screen there. The Hebrew says, Um, And verse 27 says, And that'll do it for the liturgy from the uh, Tanakh. Let's turn real quick now to the liturgy from the Apostolic Scriptures. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 7. Let's just read verse 7 and 8 tonight. Paul says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then... Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The Greek over on the uh, right side of the page, starting verse 7, says, Udes gar himon hauto ze kai udes hauto apophneske. Verse 8 says, Iente gar zomen to kurio zomen, Iente apophneskomen to kurio apophneskomen, Iente un zomen Iente Apothenescomen to Kurio Kurio Esmen. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video. And right after the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah Teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Allow me to take a bit longer this week to share my thoughts with you on a well-known and beloved passage of Scripture from Numbers 6, 24-26. May Adonai bless you and keep you. Before you found the Messiah, God sought for you. He sought to bless you by bringing you into the fellowship of His beloved Son. When the time was right and your heart was tender, He lovingly reached out to you and saved you from the death grip that sin had you in. Once your tender heart accepted His covenant relationship based on trusting faithfulness to His only unique Son, His covenant love for you secured a place for you in His kingdom to come. You were His for the keeping. May Adonai make his face shine on you and show you his favor. The Torah teaches us the wonderful yet mysterious truth that the saving name of Adonai is Yeshua. The mighty name of Yeshua is the power of salvation from the Father himself. When Yah's salvation walked the earth in bodily form, we beheld his kavod, his glory, and it was full of grace and truth. To attempt to look at the eternal Yahweh was to invite instantaneous death 
be sure, the Torah teaches us that no man has seen God and lived. Yet, Yeshua informed us that to look upon His face is to behold the face of the Father. The gracious expression of the Father's favor was demonstrated most fully in His Son's bloody sacrificial death burial, and miraculous resurrection. Through the sacrifice of the Son, the Father's face shines down upon us. May Adonai lift up his face toward you and give you peace. The Torah says, Yisa Adonai. What is the meaning of Yisa? The root word is Nasa, which means to lift, raise up, furnish, magnify, or pardon. We gain the Hebrew word Nasi, which means prince, exalted one, chief, from the same root word. But we also get a little known more specialized meaning from the word nasi. This Hebrew word also means rising wind, vapor. Who is the magnificent rising wind which uplifts the face of Adonai? Who is that exalted vapor who testifies of all that Yeshua was and is and is to come, whose filling ushers in everlasting shalom? Who is the power of God to stand us on our feet and put a new song in our mouths? The Ruach Kodesh is this person. He is the lifter of our souls. His miracle working indwelling is the power of God to lift up our countenance and usher in the genuine shalom that only comes from knowing the Messiah Yeshua in the pardon of our sins. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students. I bless you, Lord, for the rich truths that are available for us in your words. We thank you, Lord, that as difficult as it is for us to understand your very nature and who you are, nevertheless, you have revealed yourself to us through the pages of your word, which have been preserved by the Holy Spirit for us. And we know that these words are true. We know that they are altogether accurate, even though we've got some big questions when it comes to interacting with this God that we serve. How can one be three? How can three be one? We don't understand it. It's a mystery. And yet, it's not something that we cannot affirm. We are grasped. Thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is here within us. Thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is still future. It's a promise made to Israel, and we look forward to those promises as the grafted-in remnant, as the body of Messiah that is primarily at this point in time comprised of Gentiles in Messiah, but one day will also encompass the bringing in of the rest of our covenant brothers into the fold as they embrace Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel and the Messiah of the world. We look forward to the day when all Israel will be saved. And we bless you, Lord, that you didn't give up on us, even though we, corporate Israel, we rejected you. You didn't give up on us. You didn't abandon us. Thank you that Gentiles have been brought in because of the blindness of Jews, but now it's the responsibility of the Gentiles to reach out to those disenfranchised, those weak in faith, those blinded Jews, and bring them into the light, into a saving knowledge of Yeshua, our Messiah, and their Messiah. Give us holy boldness, Lord, as we witness to people around us. Help us not to be fearful 
Even though the pandemic rages on around us, we have not been given a spirit of fear. We know that you are our protector, our provider, the one who cares for us and who heals us. You are our God, our Savior. Lord Yeshua, you are God, our Savior as well. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths. Be with each and every student who has been with me tonight in the class. I pray that you'll continue to raise them up and heal them and protect them and provide for them. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 